Hey everyone, welcome to the week after Super Bowl, Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Alright Joe, well, uh, quite the Super Bowl we had last week. Uh, the Chiefs have kept their usual formula of they are the most dangerous team I've ever seen in football when they get down by 10 points or more. And somehow they yet again pulled a rabbit out of the hat and were able to win their first Super Bowl in 50 years. That's right, Dan. And who saw it coming against the bonded uh, 49ers defense, the way the 49ers were uh, controlling that game? Uh, you felt like the Chiefs were playing right into their hands because the 49ers are a team that they're different to me than the uh, Texans and even than the Titans because their defense is so good with pass rush. Um, their running game is more by committee, but it's pretty strong. And so I really think that when the 49ers look back at this Super Bowl through the years, they'll have um, immense regret that they did not uh, run the ball more when they had the big lead. I felt like that really cost them. Yeah, I mean, it reminded me a lot of uh, the Falcons when they blew that lead against the Patriots and didn't run it a whole lot in the second half. And You know, it was interesting. I, I know Shanahan was trying not to be overly conservative, but if you look at the stats they had in the first half, I mean, they weren't blowing you away with the run game. I think they were averaging a little over five yards per carry, which is plenty good enough to hold on to a lead in the second half when you push the run game. So oh, absolutely. And, you know, um, Mahomes, the thing about him that impressed me was that this was far from his best game. I mean, he's had so many games this year that were so much better and he throws two interceptions, um, and still he walks away with the Super Bowl MVP trophy. And so if that's any indication, you know, of what he can do on the biggest stage, you know, give him other opportunities in the future, you just feel like he's going to take advantage of it. Well, you know, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Tom Brady's first Super Bowl. I mean, I'm not trying to put Pat Mahomes in the, in the Tom Brady conversation yet, but... Brady's first Super Bowl win that he had against the Rams, who were the favored team. And I know that the Chiefs were favored in this game, but I think common you know, consensus was the 49ers was a better football team. And in that game, Brady, I think he threw a couple interceptions and had a passer rating that was under 80. Don't even think he threw for 200 yards. He won MVP and won the game. And uh, kind of a similar performance for Mahomes where he made the plays when he had to but didn't put up gaudy numbers like usual. No, that's a really good parallel, and I thought about that a lot myself because um, Brady was also 24 years old, same age as Mahomes, winning his first Super Bowl. And so Mahomes, with all of the hype, I can't imagine what it's going to reach next year, you know, to another magnitude because – He's been on the cover, you know, so many video games. He's getting uh, all of the attention. But I think it's, you know, so warranted because he is really right now one of the faces of the NFL. You can maybe argue the face of the NFL because we've had kind of that changing of the guard with a lot of the older quarterbacks, you know, even considering retirement like Breeze. And so Mahomes is going to kind of be the guy, probably him and Lamar Jackson, over the next several years. Yeah, and what was interesting is that, you know, we were talking about how I would probably rate that as like a C-minus game for Mahomes, and that's only because of the fourth quarter that it was even that high. But for 90% of that game, he was getting vastly outplayed by Garoppolo. And then at the end, uh, you know, Garoppolo threw his interception, and 
didn't play as good, but I thought he had a pretty good game for the most part. But I felt like they definitely put too much on him, especially in that second half. Oh, without a doubt. I went back to the stat line on Garoppolo, Dan. He threw the ball, I think, 30, 31 times. I mean, that's way too much for the uh, 49ers to win the game. I mean, the uh, first two playoff games this year, he had thrown the ball maybe 10, 15 times a game. I think maybe only eight times, or he only had eight completions against the Packers in the NFC Championship game. And so, you know, to force him to go against the recipe for success all of a sudden, um, it just did not make any sense at all. I think I saw the, the statistic that um, in the fourth quarter, the uh, 49ers only ran the ball like twice. That's right. Uh, through it, you know, so many times. And, and that's a mistake because uh, it's against um, their uh, strong suit, most notably. But also, it works against them because you can't bleed the clock and um, you can't allow uh, the defense to rest. And instead, you're going to get um, three and outs, and then the defense has to go right back on the field and try to stop Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, well, uh, what was interesting, too, is that Mahomes had to pick up all those different fourth downs, especially I think it was on the first drive where they cut it to seven. He had to pick up the fourth and a half yard, and then they had to do it, I think, fourth and goal, too. And, I mean, that, that showed a lot right there because if they don't get that touchdown, then 49ers might even put up another one and win by three scores. No, that's the compelling point, too. And, uh, you know, there were several fourth down um, conversions, conversions, as you referenced. Um, I thought the first one that the Chiefs did, I actually thought they should take the points and uh, kick the field goal because it was so early in the game. But give uh, Andy Reid credit, you know, he gambled there and it paid off uh, considerably. And uh, speaking of Andy Reid, I think that's, uh, you know, one of the biggest takeaways from this game is how everybody really feels good about the fact that Andy Reid was finally able, uh, you know, to get um, past, uh, you know, that reputation of falling in the the biggest games and win uh, that elusive and well-deserved Super Bowl ring. Well, that's right, Joe. I mean, I think that before this one, he was in the conversation with the Bills coach from the early 90s. I used to know his name. It's like it's escaping me at the moment. Who went to four Super Bowls in a row and lost them? And I think he, Joe, is the actually the only head coach to never win a Super Bowl that is in the Hall of Fame. Now I think Andy Reid would have been there, but regardless, now that he's won the Super Bowl, now he's a shoe in as maybe even a first ballot Hall of Famer as a coach. No, absolutely, and because of Patrick Mahomes' age and the makeup of this team, I mean, he may very well win another one, you know, before it's all said and done. I mean, they have uh, the team right there assembled uh, to definitely uh, take care of business. And it kind of reminds me, you know, seeing uh, Andy Reid win a championship in the NFL, it reminds me of, you know, the career of Jerry Sloan, you know, another likable guy that a lot of people rooted for, but just never was able, you know, to win a championship with the Jazz. I feel like this is almost the equivalent of in the NFL had Jerry Sloan won a championship in the NBA. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, the Utah Jazz, of course, in that legendary series against the against the Bulls, and they had a lot of close calls with Malone and Stockton. So I think that's a that's a pretty good comparison right there. And you know, I think it, the best thing that happened to Andy Reid was him leaving Philadelphia. I mean, it it worked out pretty well for him for a long time, but 
I don't think he would have won a championship there. No, no. I mean, it worked out good for both sides because we've seen uh, the Eagles two years ago win their own championship, and this year we saw Andy Reid do the same. Yeah, so that's great. I mean, he's definitely one of the most liked coaches in the NFL, and I think that, you know, everybody who wasn't playing against him was rooting for him in that game. And so that was, a, that was a big win for him. And big win for the Chiefs, who last won one, and when we were in, like, the like what, Super Bowl three, I think is the last one they won. Yeah, 50 years ago. And, you know, Joe Buck's uh, dad, Jack Buck, I think, called that game. And Joe Buck got to call uh, uh, this Super Bowl this year. Well, Joe, uh, you know, I always have to throw my, my Saints conspiracy things into to whatever. But, you know, you and I, we were not pleased about the no call for pass interference in the Saints-Vikings game. But I really went over the edge in the first half of the Super Bowl when they called that offensive pass interference on George Kittle. That actually, that may have been the play of the game. It didn't. It seemed kind of important at the time, but not necessarily, you know, game changing. But ultimately, if they get those points, then the then the Chiefs have no chance to come back at the end of that. And I thought that that was way less egregious than what Kyle Rudolph did at the end of the Saints game for the no call and pass interference there. While what Kittle did, I mean. I guess technically, if you want to be really specific on the rule, that was offensive pass interference, but I didn't think that was worth being called, not in a game like the Super Bowl. No, I mean, I concur with that. I was definitely surprised and baffled by that call. Um, It changed the momentum uh, for the 49ers. It was going to set them up for at least a field goal, probably a touchdown down going into halftime. Instead, it backed them up, and they ended up just taking a knee and not getting any points. And you're right. You look back at that call or no call with the Saints with Kyle Rudolph. Um, you know, at the time, I kind of chalked that up to, yeah, I was disappointed, but I really blame the Saints more for not showing up prepared in that game and just playing poorly and kind of felt like they deserved to lose. But when you see a play like that in the Super Bowl, it makes you look back with a little more uh, frustration. Yeah. Well, and I was frustrated from the very beginning. I, I knew I knew it was going to happen the whole time, but seeing him there in person doing the coin flip made me even more mad that Bill Vinovich, who, of course, it's his crew that missed the, the pass interference in the Saints-Rams game last year, he got to head up the Super Bowl to me as a travesty. That guy gets to head up a refereeing in a game that important when obviously he's not qualified to, to get it done. I'm sure he'll be probably in the Hall of Fame when they uh, probably so, yeah. Well, you know, if uh, if Goodell has anything to do with it, I'm sure that you know, he's, he's happy about that. I'm sure he's happy that we're mad about this now, too. So. For sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, speaking of uh, someone that's not in the Hall of Fame, we, there's been a big deal this week. You know, we talked about it a couple weeks ago with, of course, the, the big cheating scandal we have in baseball right now with uh, all of the Astros players, and then you had it with the Red Sox. And now, of course, it comes up every couple of years. Uh, should Pete Rose finally be forgiven? And now, I mean, I think he definitely has more of a point that if you don't keep out someone like Jose Altuve or any of these other players that, that were on the Astros and you still don't put Pete Rose in, then that's pretty ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that there's no doubt about it that Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, you have an all-time Major League Baseball hits leader 
who is not in the Hall of Fame. I think that that kind of, um, you know, is counterintuitive to having um, a, a Hall of Fame for baseball. It makes no sense at all, especially because I know that what he did, you know, was wrong, obviously, um, betting, you know, on games that um, he was managing for the Cincinnati Reds. However, um, we look at his career before that. He was a Hall of Fame player before all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, he was a Hall of Fame player as a player, not as a manager. And I think that that needs to be accounted for. Um, it's completely different to me than what the Astros have done, because with the Astros, they use that as an advantage to them. Um, they were able to still sign so that their hitters could get a distinct advantage over the opposing pitchers. I have not read anything or seen any evidence about Pete Rose getting an advantage over opposing pitchers um, in his path to become uh, the all-time hits leader as a player. Well, and, and Joe, to me, it's really it's not really fair because if you look at it, all of his bets, and they've tracked this. I mean, they, they have a they have a clear ledger of it. Well, he's betting on his team to win. So it's not like there's any competitive disadvantage. It wasn't like he was asking his team to throw games. He just had a severe belief in his team and possibly an addictive gambling personality. And so he gambled on his team to win. So I don't see how there's any there's any issue with uh, you know him throwing games. It's not like the Chicago Black Sox of 1919. I mean, this was him betting on his own team. So there's no... You know, there's no real issue of competition in it. No, absolutely. And, you know, there are um, a lot of people, you know, that have made mistakes that are in the Hall of Fame, obviously. You know, it's not necessarily a uh, Hall of Fame of character and integrity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can dissect people's lives that are in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I'm sure we can find out a lot worse than what uh, Pete Rose um, is accused of of doing. Yeah, like, I think that that's you know, be considered as well. Um, but, you know, on a side note, one interesting uh, anecdote of research I did find when I was looking over um, this story for uh, the show, um, when Pete Rose was the manager of the Reds, he was there, I think, from like 1984 to 1989. Um, he was uh, fired after the, after the 89 season. Well, in 1990, the Reds went on to win the World Series in a huge upset over uh, the Oakland A's. And I found that interesting because, you know, it reminded me of our conversation from a couple of weeks ago about these, you know, coaches that are able to win championships maybe with somebody else's team, like Larry Coker you know, or a J- a John Gruden. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. You know, 1990, the Reds uh, win a World Series that a lot of people don't even remember, and their manager was uh, Luke Pinella. Oh, wow. How about that? Well, Luke Pinella, though, did turn out to be a pretty good manager with a lot of different uh, franchises. So I don't know if he necessarily fits into our Larry Cooper, uh, Gene Chizik conversation, but it does make sense that. Yeah, I mean, he definitely went on to be a good manager of the Reds, uh, or not the Reds, the, the Seattle Mariners, excuse yeah. me, Kinder Jr. But, you know, I, I had not realized or I'd forgotten that uh, Pete Rose was the architect of that team. Yeah, but I, I, I'm with you on the fact that I met John Gruden, and he's nice, but I think he's highly overrated. <laughs> that's just that's just my personal opinion on that. Um, but you know, that, that that's interesting. I really hope that Pete Rose is able to get in the Hall of Fame because I think now with this going on, it just shows it sheds further light on the fact that he really needs to. They need to go ahead and get over this and 
And, you know, especially when you look at some of the guys you have in the Hall of Fame. Ty Cobb, the dude was a racist and assaulted fans in the in the stadium. And you're going to say that he's more fit to be in the Hall of Fame than, you know, than someone who bet on his own team? I mean, you just yeah, you got to look at the severity of the crime. Now, you know, if it was something like the Black Sox where he was throwing games intentionally and disrupting the integrity of what the overall result is, that's different, but that's not what he was doing. No, absolutely not. And I think it's only a matter of time. You know, it may take more years. It may not even be while he's still alive. I think at some point he will get in um, because they do have these uh, alternative routes for people to make the Hall of Fame later on. Um, the Baseball Writers of America, I don't think they would ever put him in. Yeah. But some of these alternative committees, like the Veterans Committee and some of these other subcommittees, they do get votes. And I think at some point Pete Rose will hopefully get in. Well, Joe, one thing we were talking about earlier is how Pat Mahomes has kind of become the new face of the NFL, and you're seeing the old guard go away. I mean, Breeze is definitely about to hang it up, if not this this season, then next. Brady, it's either going to be he's hanging it up or he's going to a new uh, franchise to play, uh, hearing a lot about the Chargers. But that is not the way it is in tennis right now. In tennis, the old guard is as strong as ever, and it doesn't seem like anybody can break through. And my one guy that I've talked about a lot on this show is the man that's going to break through, uh, you know, I guess the holy triune, if you want to, of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. You just control the sport. And, you know, I thought it was going to be Dominic Tim. And he keeps getting closer and closer. And, Joe, this last match that he had, just absolutely stunning. I watched the whole thing. And he goes five sets with Djokovic, and he just can't close the deal. And Djokovic wins his ninth Australian Open, which is the second most of a single major after Nadal's 12 that he has at the French Open. And, I mean, Tim did everything he could. He really played a great match. But one thing that I've always said about Djokovic is when he's on his A game, he's the number one guy in the world. And when you get him playing his C game, you have to put him away because – he will turn it around if you don't lay the hammer down. And the problem that uh, Tim had is he got up two sets to one, and then he fell apart in the fourth set, and that was I knew he was going to lose the fifth set. He played a great set in the fifth set, but he had a chance in the fourth, and that was when he had to do it. Yeah, I think it reminded me a lot of the, the Wimbledon final last year, I believe, between uh, Federer and Djokovic. Mm-hmm. When it looked like Federer was going to you know, close the door, but he gave uh, Djokovic an opening and he was able to come back and win that. And with a great player like Djokovic, especially you know, still in his prime, um, just 32 still, um, you know, you've got to put him away. You cannot give him that extra life support. And um, the crazy thing about Djokovic to me is, you know, I was looking back at his career, just all the grand slams now that he's won, um, with the exception, I guess, of the French Open, where he also, he's only won one grand slam there. That's been a little bit of his, I guess, Achilles heel, if you will. Aside from that, he's just been so dominant at the Australian Open and then won, you know, multiple titles at the other two grand slams. And it's interesting because for a while, it was Nadal and Federer as far as, you know, the 2000s with uh, the tennis uh, rivalry. And it would be almost the equivalent of, you know, a third person interrupting, uh, like, the Larry Bird-Magic Johnson rivalry when that was in its uh, zenith back in the 1980s. To see a third person like Djokovic 
be able to uh, basically interrupt the Nadal or Federer rivalry and not only interrupt it, but just rise to such um, a, a legendary level. It just speaks volumes for the player he is. And, you know, the way his career is going, I still think, you know, he's got several more um, really uh, strong years and uh, no telling where he could be at the end uh, when he retires. Yeah, Joe, I mean, uh, you don't really ever have it where these three guys are all on kind of an equal level, and you have no idea who's going to end their career with the most majors. Uh, right now, it's, it's there's two that separates all of them. So Federer has 23, Nadal has 21, and Djokovic has 19. Uh, Djokovic, I think, is a, is a year younger than Nadal is. And then, of course, you know, Federer's about four or five years older than, uh, than Nadal is right now. So it's going to be between Nadal and Djokovic, I think, ultimately. But I think if Roger could win one more, he maybe has a chance to hold on to that. But it just really is amazing how well these three guys are controlling this. Um, in the 60s and 70s, you had Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Gary Player. It's kind of the most congruous thing to this. But the problem was Gary Player was never near on the same level as Nicholas or Palmer. And there was a pretty wide gap between Nicholas and Palmer, too, with Nicholas being a lot better. Um, so, I mean, I really don't think I've ever seen it where you have three guys of this magnitude that are all really on the same level. Yeah, I mean, it's rare, like I said, just in any sport to have uh, three guys at that level or three teams that are, you know, that comparable to one another as far as uh, competitive rigor. Yeah, and so it's just going to be really fascinating to see what happens because each of them have their own uh, – they have their own tournament that they're great at. Uh, with Federer, he kills it at Wimbledon. That's always been his thing. With Nadal, him at the, at the French Open is probably – the most dominant event for a single uh, a single person athlete in anything. I mean, his, his control of the clay at the French Open is just amazing. And now what Djokovic is doing at the Australian Open, I mean, it's it's approaching the doll level at the French Open, so it's pretty amazing. And I'm looking at this right now just because I'm interested in it. Uh, they, they say the big four, and they throw Andy Murray in there. To me, that's a little ridiculous to even try and put him in this, this category. But... Since 2004, I'm looking at this. Let's see. Basically, they've won like 95% of all majors. I mean, there's like no one that's even really getting getting a chance. And so I thought Dominic Tim was definitely the guy who could break through. And last year, he played a pretty good final against uh, Nadal. He went four sets with him in the French Open. And that was what really like got him on my radar. And I really thought that he was finally going to break through against Djokovic, especially when uncharacteristically in that match in the Australian Open, Djokovic started getting tired. You could see it. And so the fact that Tim being 25, you know, about seven years younger than what Djokovic is, didn't take advantage of that was really interesting to me. and just shows not only what the physical aspect these guys have, but psychologically, they still scare these younger guys. Oh, Absolutely. And yet you brought up Andy Murray. I, I don't see that either as a big four. I mean, he's a great player, but he's just not in the, the stratosphere of the big three. Yeah, and, you know, I think that if there was going to be a guy who could have gotten in the, in, the, in the big four and made it to where there would be another guy with multiple major titles that could have joined it, it would have been Del Potro. But but sadly for Juan Del Potro, he's had all those, those really bad back issues, 
and then wrist issues, and he's never been healthy enough for a long period of time to consistently compete with these guys. But when he plays his top level, he's able to compete with Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. But he's just never had that the consistent healthiness to be able to be on that level. Yeah. So, but it, it was a, it was a really great match, and if you just want to see just a gritty. Uh, epic tennis that just shows you how hard it is when you're at that top level. I mean, I think it was like a five and a half hour match, just the endurance they had to put into it, and just really tight. Uh, probably one of the best finals I've ever seen. You definitely had a big sports viewing day with that in the, the Super Bowl on the same day. I did, yeah. Actually, uh, started at 3.30 in the morning. I didn't watch that. I recorded it, and then they had the uh, the second one, the replay of it was on during the Super Bowl, so I recorded that one and watched the Super Bowl instead, and then later, it was easy for me to do some work while I watched the Australian Open, and so I watched the whole thing, and, and I didn't look at the results. I waited, and I, I didn't see what it was, but I guessed it. Like I said, as soon as Tim lost that fourth set, I was like, no way. Djokovic has got those. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, speaking of things that, that someone's got, Trump got off. And we, we knew this was going to happen, uh, especially with the makeup of the U.S. Senate right now. With it being a Republican majority, there was no way that you were going to see an actual conviction in it. But what's been really funny is all of the tweets and what you're seeing on social media since the acquittal. And when you add into what happened with the Iowa caucuses, it's been even funnier. And, of course, our, uh, our locker room talk is inspired by Donald Trump, and that's our, our little funny segment we do at the end of the show. And this week's locker room talk is Trump-specific. And, as always, our locker room talk is brought to you by our fine sponsors, starting with uh, Beach Ball Properties, good friends Hunter and Ginger Harrelson. Uh, right now, they've reached over 100 properties now in Orange Beach and Gulf Shores. So a lot of options if you're looking – to uh, get yourself a vacation home, maybe for spring break coming up in about a month. Give Hunter and Ginger a call at Beach Ball Properties and have a ball at the beach. And then also, uh, Jensen Computer Technologies, contact Ryan Daryl Jensen uh, right outside of Hattiesburg, Mississippi for all of your computer needs, whether it's residential or commercial. Hi, Joe. So what got me thinking about this uh, locker room talk uh, topic is one of the congressmen from Alabama, Mo Brooks, sent this tweet out, which I thought it was funny. It was probably an inappropriate tweet for you to send out as a congressman who's running for re-election. And it had a, um, had a Mexican man with a mustache and a sombrero, and it said, Mexican word of the day, acquitted. And then at the bottom it says, used in sentence, the Democrats should have acquitted while they were ahead. And I, I, I thought that was pretty good. I liked it. Yet again, if I was a congressman, I probably wouldn't have sent that tweet out. So that made me thinking, that, that got me thinking, what are some other really good acquitted memes that I'm seeing on the internet? So I pulled some up, and uh, Joe, I'm going to let you take the one about uh, Maury Povich, because I know you like that one especially. Yeah, that was kind of funny and clever. It says, uh, Democrats, the test results are back, and Donald Trump is your day. <laughs> Um, I like the one, uh, it's got Trump and it's got, it's from the State of the Union address. And of course, everyone knows that uh, Nancy Pelosi technically committed a federal crime when she ripped up the speech notes for the State of the Union. And it has Pence clapping, Trump giving a speech, and then a little baby 
with hands in her ears, having ripped up papers in front of her, of course, being Pelosi. Well, let's see. Looking back on Mother's screen, so I can. Uh, let's see. I mean, I saw one with um, Nancy Pelosi. Um, They're talking about like the gold pin, um, the gold, I guess, impeachment pin. And this one says, uh, for sale, gold impeachment pin, only used once, didn't work. If interested, call Nancy and it has her cell phone number. <laughs> I like one where it's got Nancy Pelosi. It's, she's looking at a piece of paper, like the speech papers, and it says, Dear Nancy, I'm still president. You can rip up these papers if it makes you feel any better. Love, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also one, I don't see this on our list, but like a meme about there being like a love note from uh, Donald Trump to her and that that was the reason she ripped up the papers. So there was another one I saw that was funny, and it's not necessarily on the impeachment uh, or on the acquittal, but it does relate to a lot of the things that people have accused Trump of, namely the fact that they said there was an election scandal with Russia interfering with the election, yada, yada. And someone said, the Iowa caucuses, finally a real election scandal. Wow. And, and then, you know, I'm looking at one right here. Let's see. And then here's an interesting one right here. It's got a picture of uh, Abe Lincoln, and it says, I haven't seen Democrats this mad since Republicans freed their slaves. And I was like, ooh, low blow from 150 years ago, because technically the Republican Party was the one that freed the slaves and not the Democrats, which, of course, would be contrary to what most people would think of nowadays. Right. Um, but with that being said, thank you for listening to Dan and Joe Sports Show and follow our podcast at the Dan and Joe Sports Show. You can find it and find all our episodes. As always, I'm Dan. 